Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church Pine City podcast. This message is part two of our New Beginning series. Well, last week we started talking about new beginnings because at the beginning of the year, you kind of you kind of want to start fresh, right? You, you have this feeling of, I want a clean slate, I want to do things new, and I don't want this coming year to be like last year in, in some ways, right? You don't want to get to December and have it be, uh, the, you be the same person as in January. You want to grow, you want to, you want to do some new things, you got some goals maybe. Uh, I know people uh, don't do resolutions per se much anymore, it's kind of passe, but, but we, we want to be a little bit different. There's things that we want to, to change or to accomplish, but so often we get stuck in kind of this mold of, well, it's the same old, same old. You know, you get to the end of the year, and, and really, what, we have a, what have we accomplished? It's like, you know, we burned through another year, but we're still struggling with the same problems we had last year. And it's so hard to make lasting changes, especially changes in the things that matter most, like, like with our walk with God. So how do we break out of that kind of a cycle? Well, last week, we started uh, looking at Israel as they faced their own new beginning in the land that God had promised them. What they faced is what we so often face, and hopefully their experiences will help keep us from making the same kind of mistakes they made. Last week, in the book of Joshua, we saw Israel begin to move back into the land of Canaan. And today we're going to look at the book of Judges. And this really is, is the whole like climax of the Old Testament. This is everything up and till now has pointed toward this moment. Uh, back in Genesis, God made this covenant with Abraham that he was going to create a community of people who would be in relationship to, to God. Then there was this very long waiting period, like decades of the patriarchs wandering around and 40 years in the wilderness, uh, centuries of slavery in Egypt, another decade of uh, conquest under Joshua, battle after battle, and it all led up to this moment that we read about right now. And for the first time in human history, a generation of human beings has the opportunity to live freely under the direct rule of God and to be a community of such love and, and light and righteousness that all the peoples on earth would be drawn to it and be blessed by it. That's the opportunity this people have. How do you think they're going to do? Yeah, we're going to start in Judges chapter 2. Now that word judge is actually kind of an unfortunate translation because when, when I think of judge, you know, I think of like Judge Judy or, you know, Judge Wapner, if you remember him, you know, I kind of think of, uh, of something like that, a judicial figure in a, in a courtroom in robes and so on, but that's not what they're talking about here. The word that gets translated as judge, really the root word is, is to lead. And, and judges were leaders. They had uh, moral and political leadership, but primarily military leadership uh, amongst the Israelites. Now, the judges are not perfect people. Often they're quite violent, sometimes deeply flawed, but God uses them anyway. And there's kind of a pattern that we're going to see here play out in the life of Israel. And I want you to see if you can spot it. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. It says in Judges 2, 6, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. So Joshua leads them in. He's like... The, the whole book of Joshua is all to this point. Then he dismisses the Israelites. He says, go, take, take possession of the land. 
Verse 7, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him who had seen all the great things that Yahweh had done for Israel. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, which is a nice way of saying, you know, they all died. After, after that whole generation died, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the, the eyes of Yahweh and served the Baals. They forsook Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt, and they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused Yahweh's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, Yahweh gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around them whom they were no longer able to resist because God wasn't with them anymore. He, he had helped them uh, win, and now they're no longer able to resist. Verse 15, whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of Yahweh was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. Like, this is not new news. God had told them, like, hey, you go follow after other gods. You're on your own, right? I'll be with you as long as you're with me. It says they were in great distress. Then Yahweh raised up judges, these military leaders, primarily military, who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to Yahweh's commands. Not all of them, but, but the ones that had been obedient, they turned from those ways. And whenever Yahweh raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived, verse 19. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. Now there's kind of a, a vicious cycle being described here. See, God gives victory to the people under Joshua, and they have an era of peace. But then the people grew complacent, and, and they gave in to sin, and God hands them over to their enemies. And as a result, they're in a period of pain, and because they're in pain, the text says that they cry out to God, God, help us, help us, God, God, we're, we're suffering, we're, we're being oppressed, you know, help us, we're, we're, we're all of this problem. And we know what that's like, we cry out in pain, uh, we cry, they cry out to God, oh yeah, God, that's right, you know, God, help us, send a, send a deliverer. And, and God does, God sends a deliverer, and for a while they have a period of peace again, and then they're back into sin. And then it's this whole same cycle, peace and complacency and sin and pain. And they cry out and they get deliverance. And then there's peace and complacency and sin. And they cry out and there's deliverance. And if you look at Judges 3-7, you kind of see the, kind of the bare bones of this cycle. This is the first judge, a guy named Othniel. It says the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh, complacency, uh, they forgot Yahweh their God and served the Baals and the Ashtras. That's sin. Then the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel, and he sells them into the hands of a king, and there's pain. Verse 9, But when they cried out to Yahweh, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. And Othniel becomes Israel's judge, and he leads them to war, and God delivers the people. And they've got peace for 40 years. And you go, woo, you know, that's a good, that was close. And you, you hope that people go, oh, 
wow, you know, that was bad. You know, whew. We, we cried out to God. God delivered us. We finally learned our lesson. Wouldn't you hope they would say that? They, they finally learned their lesson. Verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. But, and because they did this evil, Yahweh gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. And Israel is oppressed by them for 18 years. 18 years. Look down at verse 15. It says, again, the Israelites cried out to Yahweh, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The writer says, a left-handed man. Why does it note that Ehud was left-handed? Well, it's because God hardly ever uses left-handed people. No, that's not true. I'm just, I'm just kidding on that. Now, literally the phrase in the text says, he was hindered in his right hand. So it can mean that he was handicapped in his right hand. It might be that the writer is trying to say that uh, this judge had a disability. He, he God used somebody with a disability to deliver his people. And then what follows is like a scene from a movie. It's so amazing. It's so graphic. It's so, uh, it's so complex. You're going to love this. It's so gross, right? Verse 16, it says, Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which is about 18 inches. So uh, he makes his double-edged sword, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Now, they had been conquered, they'd been like oppressed by Moab, and uh, had to bring tribute. So they brought gold or money or something like that. They brought all this tribute, and he had help carrying it. It says, after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon. So he's like, hey, everybody else, you guys go ahead. Thanks for your help. I appreciate the carrying. I'm going to go back and talk to, to, um, to Eglon. And so he goes back to Eglon and he says this. He says, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. I got a secret message. And the king said to his attendants, ooh, secret message, right? He says, leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace. And he says, I've got a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Remember, it said Eglon uh, was, was a very fat man. It, it says, even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Like, gross, right? Verse 23, then Ehud went out on to the porch. He shut the doors to the upper room behind him and locked them. So what happens next is that the servants come up to find out what's going on with the king, and they find the doors locked. And they say this, literally they say, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. And I'm like, well, maybe you know, the smell, his bowels discharge. And they're like, oh yeah, he's on the john. You know, we're gonna leave him alone. Uh, by the time they finally like break down the doors or whatever to, to check on, on Eglon, Ehud's gone. He's long gone. Very violent, kind of gross story. Junior hires love it. Like, he, you should read your Bible, right? Ehud calls the Israelites to follow him. God delivers them from Moab after all these years of oppression. And you're like, okay, wow. Now they finally learned their lesson, right? Let's see, Judges 4, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh, now that Ehud was dead. So Yahweh sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. And Jabin cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And they cried out to Yahweh for help. And God responds once again. It says, Now Deborah, a prophet, 
the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. Now, a couple unusual things about this judge, Deborah. First of all, she's a prophet. Not, that's not true of the other judges. In fact, like uh, you'll see some of them don't walk very closely with God at all. And apparently she does. So much so that God chose her to be the one through whom he would proclaim his word to other people. So that's first thing. Second thing, what else do you notice that's unusual about this prophet, Deborah? She's a woman, right? And sometimes people have questions about, about women teaching and leading in church. And after Christ, Paul says in the New Testament that there's neither male nor female, but we're all one. The Holy Spirit's poured out on men and women alike. But I just want to point out that even in the Old Testament, you've got a woman exercising spiritual leadership. Deborah is the highest leader in Israel, and she's married, but it was she, not her husband, that's chosen by God to be leader of the people. In fact, her husband was part of Israel, so one of the people she's leading is her husband. Now, you see the kind of respect that she commands in verse 8. She calls the commander-in-chief of Israel's forces, a guy named Barak, and she gives him an order to march against their enemy, a guy named Sisera. So this is a Barak. Hey, head out, take the people, you know, march against Sisera. Verse 8, Barak says to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Okay, he's commander-in-chief, this big general. He's not going to go into battle unless a woman goes with him. It's kind of counter to all the stereotypes back in that day. Kind of reminds me of a story. It's a true story actually happened of a, uh, back in the Mattel Corporation, makes Barbie dolls and G.I. Joes, and they mixed up the voice boxes in them. And so Barbie would say, oh, let's move out, let's show some guts, you know? And then the little boys would get G.I. Joe, and he would say, okay, let's go shopping, <laughs> right? Like just kind of this reversal of stereotypes. And that's what's going on in the text. The general's like, I'm not going into battle unless you, Deborah, a woman, will go with me. And so she does, and there's this battle, and God again is at work to deliver his people. And then, in chapter 5, Deborah writes this ancient hymn of worship, which means not only was she a judge and a prophet, she's also one of the inspired authors of a chapter of Scripture. Very cool. So God delivers his people, and you think, oh, whew, maybe now, finally, Israel has learned their lesson. Judges 6.1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Like, again, like, come on. Like, don't you think God's patience is wearing a little thin by now? And for seven years, he gave them, God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Look down at verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to Yahweh for help. And one more time, God responds. And this time he raises up this guy, this judge by the name of Gideon. Now, Gideon's kind of a character, okay? Not exactly the bravest guy in the world. You can kind of think of like Barney Fife from the old Andy Griffith show, sort of that, that level of fear and anxiety going on here. In fact, when we first meet him, he is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, normally you would thresh wheat on a flat surface so the wind could blow the chaff away, but he does it in a wine press, which is kind of like sunken in, so he can hide from the Midianites. And God speaks to him through an angel, sends this messenger to speak on his behalf, and the angel finds him and he's like, oh, mighty warrior, you know, and I think there's some irony going on here. Uh, the first thing Gideon does 
and starts questioning and complaining to, to God through this angel. It's like basically like, oh, you know, well, where, where have you been? And how come, you know, and you want me to do this and I'm not able to do this because my clan is weak and blah, 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 blah. And finally we read this, verse 16. It says, Yahweh answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And you would think Gideon would be like, oh, okay, well, that sounds good. You know, I believe you, God. But Gideon doesn't. He can't believe this. So he asks for a sign. So God sends a miraculous sign of fire to, to consume his sacrifice. And God says, okay, Gideon, I want you to go tear down your father's idol to Baal, uh, build an altar to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and sacrifice uh, with, on the, that altar. Judges 6.27 says, Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Kind of getting the, the, the level of fear that is going on in Gideon's life. But God protects him and he succeeds. And now it's time to do battle with the Midianites that God has called him to. And you think by now Gideon would have enough faith. But he doesn't. And there's this whole back and forth deal with a fleece and, and Gideon's like, okay, God, I want, you, I want you to do a sign for me. I'll tell you what, I'm going to put this fleece outside and if the fleece is wet in the morning and the ground's dry, then I'll know it's you and it, it is the next morning. So he's like, okay, well, let's try it the other way around because that could have just been an accident or whatever. You know, so the next day, it, the fleece is dry, the ground is wet. And, you know, God finally just is like, yeah, forget it. You know, I'm going to pick somebody else. You're too much of a dork. Uh, not really. God doesn't say that, but I would have, right? Wouldn't you have said that? But God's gracious. He answers Gideon, and finally Gideon trusts God's going to be with him to help him. So Judges chapter 7, he leads Israel to war against the Midianites. Now, Gideon sends out a call to some of the other Israelite tribes in the area, because Judges kind of sometimes exercise regional authority and, and their terms of service maybe overlapped a little bit. But he's in this area. He calls some of the other Israelite tribes, gathers 32,000 tro troops. 32,000 troops he recruits to help him. The only problem is, we find out in chapter 8, the Midianites had 135,000 soldiers. So Gideon is outnumbered by a ratio of 4 to 1. And God comes to Gideon and is like, oh, Hey, Gideon, the enemy has 135,000 troops. You've got 32,000. You've got a numbers problem. And Gideon's like, oh, I am so glad to hear you say that. You know, I thought you were going to make me go into battle with 32,000 soldiers. And God's like, no, I wouldn't do that. You don't need that many. I want you to send home everybody who's afraid. Let's get rid of some people. <laughs> Gideon's got to be going like, what? He's not real happy about this. So he's got to talk to the troops. And I imagine the conversation kind of went like this, like, Okay, man, oh, we got the bravest, strongest, most courageous people in all the area, 32,000 of us, you know, ooh, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this, we can do this, you guys are brave, you're strong, I know we can do this, but if any of you are scared, I'm not I'm sure nobody is, but if any of you guys are cowards, you know, chicken, or afraid, if you're afraid, you can just go home, like, right, but it's, uh, but, you know, I'm sure that's not going to happen. 22,000 went home. <laughs> two-thirds, over two-thirds of his force go home, which is an indication morale is not real high. There's 10,000 soldiers left, and now Gideon is outnumbered 13 to 1. And God comes to him and is like, Gideon, you got a numbers problem. And Gideon's like, I don't need any more help, God. Like, you know, I'm good, thanks. And God's like, no, let's go another round. 
And he tells Gideon this. He says, I want you to take everybody down to the river to drink. And I want you to send home everybody who kneels down and drinks from their knees. Only keep those who lap from their hands like a dog. Well, there's only like 300 of these guys. 9,700 guys are now supposed to go home. Now, why does God say just pick the ones that lap from their hands like a dog? Like when I was a kid, you know, I probably heard this somewhere, but I always thought, well, they must have been extra specially good. You know, like they were, they were vigilant and they're lapping from uh, their hands like a dog because they're like looking for attack or something like that. Probably not the case. Probably not the case because in scripture, it's never a good thing to be compared to a dog. Right? Dogs, you know, back then they, they were scavengers, they were uh, feral, kind of like, yeah, it's not, not a good thing to be, um, uh, it's never a compliment to be compared to a dog. An Old Testament scholar by the name of Doug Stewart talks about this. He says, probably the idea is that the guys that drank that way, they lapped like a dog, they're doing it in a kind of a geeky way. You know, they're, they're kind of awkward guys. So these are not elite troops. It's not the Navy SEALs that Gideon's being left with. And the whole point of this, of God winnowing down this army, is so that it would be clear that when the battle is won, it's because of God alone. And it's not because God is like so anxious to get credit for everything. It's that he wants to break that, that constant cycle of sin and pain. And, and he wants, wants the Israelites to know their only hope is to trust in him and to, to submit to him. So he leaves Gideon with 300 dog lappers, you know, kind of geeky guys who would trip over their own swords. The Midianite soldiers now outnumber the Israelites 450 to 1. But God gives them a miraculous victory. You can read all about it. They are delivered. It's incredible. The sad part of the story is that Gideon does not finish well. I'll just kind of summarize this. You can read about it in the latter part of Judges 8. It's interesting. Toward the end of his life, the people offer to make Gideon a king. And Gideon's like, no, no. But then he does all the things that Moses warned a king might do way back in Deuteronomy 17. Like make people give him massive amounts of gold. And his family life is a mess. Like Gideon ends up with 70 sons. Do you think he had more than one wife? Yeah, I hope so, right? He gets a whole harem. He's a, his family life is a mess. And worst of all, look what happens in Judges chapter 8, verse 27. It says, Gideon took all this gold that he got from the people, and he made the gold into an ephod, which is this religious image, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. He breaks the second commandment about making a religious image and, and leads all the people into idolatry. Like, Gideon does not finish well. It's very, very sad. Now, I want to pause here and just kind of point out something about this whole cycle. This, uh, the, a major point in the book of Judges is how often this cycle gets repeated. Now, the book of Judges talks about 12 judges. You got six major judges, which get most of the, the airtime. We got most details on them. And then you got six what are called minor judges. Uh, and for the six major judges, this whole cycle is spelled out explicitly. And we can assume this cycle is at work with the minor judges as well, which means this cycle gets repeated 12 times. Now, 12 times the people choose sin and it leads to pain. And they choose sin and it leads to pain. And they choose sin and it leads to pain. And wouldn't you think that after 
I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine times, the clue phone would ring and they'd be like, oh, hey, yeah, whenever I choose sin, it leads to pain. You know, like, like a two-year-old can figure that out. Well, they keep falling for the same thing. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why. See, the, their besetting sin was worship of Baal. And the evil one made Baal worship look real attractive. See, there's a reason Israel kept falling for it. For one thing, it was convenient. Like they didn't have to travel to the tabernacle three times a year for feasts, you know, to, like you did with the God of Israel. In fact, in 1 Kings it says, there were shrines to Baal on every high hill and under every green tree. How convenient. You could just worship Baal practically anywhere. It's very convenient, right? And it's built on self-gratification, this Baal worship. Like there's no Ten Commandments. There's no, there's no command to be holy. There's no ethic connection with worship. In fact, sexual promiscuity is built into worship. <laughs> Easy to draw a crowd for Baal worship, right? Like as long and as long as you gave offerings to Baal, he had to do what you would request. He had to come through for you. And it was normal, Baal worship. Like, like everybody's doing it. Everybody in their world did it. Back then, they believed in a lot of gods. And the Assyrians, they, they had a list of 611 gods they would worship and ask for things. So, you know, everybody's doing it. It's convenient. It's all about, you know, self, self-gratification. It's convenient. It's easy. Everybody's doing it. Just do it. Come on. Sin looked attractive, so they just kept falling for the same thing over and over and over and over. Now, before you get too judgmental about Israel, do you know anybody else who keeps falling for sin? Me. I do. I have that problem more than I want to admit. And you know what I've realized? It's not new sins that tempt me a lot. You know, it's not like, ooh, I've never robbed a convenience store. You know, I feel, I feel tempted to do that. It's not, no, it's not something I've never done before. It's, it's just the same thing over and over. And you know what that's like. You, you kind of get caught in that cycle. And the temptation comes around on a regular basis and we get trapped in this carousel of pain. See, this hasn't changed. In the moment of temptation, you can count on the evil one to deceive you and to make sin look attractive and to hide the pain that inevitably follows sin. You can count on it. If I were to go to an adult website in that moment, it would just feel good. If I lose my temper and let my anger fly towards somebody I want to hurt, it'll just feel good. If I gossip and betray confidence, but it lets me bond with another person, you know, kind of get, get in tight with them, it'll, it'll make me feel good. But the pain always comes with the sin and the guilt and the shame and the, ah, oh, I did it again, you know, the hiding. You know that pain. It's that, it's that regret that stabs you inside. It's the damage you do to another person. And God keeps asking, like, come on, how much pain is it going to take before you learn? I want you to notice something else about this cycle. The pain that causes people to cry out over and over 12 times, uh, it's, it's that pain. They cry out. The pain, they cry out. But there's a major difference between crying out in pain versus authentic repentance. There's a major difference between just crying out in pain because like everybody wants the pain to go away. It's like, oh, I just want the pain to stop. You know, just make it stop. Everybody wants that. That's a real different thing from repenting. And the people didn't really repent. And the proof is that when the pain went away, their motivation to change went away. 
They just went back to Baal. Authentic repentance says, God, I want to be made right. I'm tired of Baal having this this grip on me. I want to be whole. I want to be clean. And I don't care what it takes, God. I don't care if it takes pain. I will embrace that pain if it can move me towards life and light. That's repentance. And God responds to that. But even with this fallen people, like with something that falls pretty far short of repentance, God responds. Twelve times they cry out, and twelve times God answers. Just keeps offering grace. Because really, there's two things you can count on. Two things in the world you can count on. You can count on the evil one to deceive you, and, and you can count on him to, to delude and disappoint and, and make, make sin look attractive and, and it always leads to pain. You can count on that. And you can count on God to be faithful. See, that's the good news. You can count on God to forgive, and you can count on God to give grace. That's what God loves to do most of all. See, God is faithful. And God delivers His people. Would you pray with me? God, thank You that You are faithful. Thank You that in the midst of the pain and the constant cycle that we get trapped into ourselves of sin and pain and calling out to You and that You always come through for us. And You never get tired and just say, forget about it. You, you just you love us. But Lord, we, we, we want to get out of that cycle. Lord, we need to repent authentically to to turn our back on on sin to trust you god ultimately that's all we can trust thank you for the examples of the judges and the people and and this the trap that they kept falling into so that hopefully it'll help us keep from doing that so god just help us to do that give us wisdom to know how how to do that and then give us the courage to do it give us the courage to step out in faith and to break that cycle Lord, we love you. We ask all these things now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. See you next week.